Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. We're going to read Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Uh, So just a a short text today, uh, giving you maybe some eyes to where we'll be going. We will still do an Advent uh, around Christmas um, but the series will probably take us close to about as long as Romans did, maybe 35, 40 messages, but we want to uh, trudge through and see the beauty uh, that is in Hebrews, starting with just the very first four uh, verses. So verse one, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son who he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he was inherited, more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would draw near uh, to us, Holy Spirit, that you would come near. Uh, Our prayer is uh, just simple in in this series. Lord, show us a bigger uh, picture for who Jesus is. I pray that our hearts would be overwhelmed with his uh, goodness, uh, that the joy of a relationship with with him and what he has done uh, and his stance over creation and all things, that that would well up in our hearts, that would eclipse anything else that we're looking to. Uh, Holy Spirit, give us a, a bigger picture of Christ. May we see him as beautiful. May we want to hide in the shadow of his wings. May we want to see that his burden is light. May we see him as beautiful and glorious. Do a great work in our hearts. We pray that, uh, Lord, in your name, uh, come, draw near. Amen. So C.S. Lewis, uh, I'm almost 40, so I think I'm at that age. You should probably say his name at most sermons. At least that's what I like. I see on podcasts and stuff. But uh, uh, C.S. Lewis beautifully captured... Uh, the growing Christian's experience of beholding and enlarging Christ uh, in his work, The Chronicles of Narnia. If you remember uh, Lucy, the young sister, she had not seen Aslan, who is uh, Christ, uh, in quite some time, and then she sees him out in the woods. She sees him. He's shining white and huge in the moonlight, and in a burst of emotion, she rushed to him, buried her face in his mane, and the, the great line kind of rolled over on his back, and she embraced him uh, like a child would their father on, on the ground. There's this big hug, and she gazed up into the face of Aslan, and, and, and hear this dialogue. I found it extremely sweet this week. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. This is because you're older, little one, he answered. Not because you are, she asked. I'm not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And that line hit deep this week. Every year you grow, every time you grow, you're going to find me bigger. And when a child grows up, like normally that's not what happens, right? They, they feel like things get smaller, like they shrink down. They feel like what seemed big and glorious and grand at one point was only actually big to them because they were small, but now their perception has changed and with time and wisdom under uh, their, their belt, what used to be big and wonderful and awesome and huge uh, just shrinks. And this is not meant to be the way it is with our Savior King, the way it is with Jesus. Kent Hughes said plainly, Expanding souls encounter an expanding Christ. This is what we're meant to walk into. 
a beautiful, more full and grand picture of Jesus day after day after day. Will there be seasonality to it? Yeah, man, there, there will be. But expanding souls will encounter an expanding Christ. This is part of the reason that we wanted to go towards Hebrews, because what it's going to do is it regularly presents us with the greatness of Christ like no other New Testament book does over and over and over, and it's going to kind of demand a response from you. This is who Christ is. Respond accordingly. And I'll say as well, there's some times in this book where it's going to ask for action. A lot of this book is declarative. It's not asking for your agreement. Uh, It's not asking for you to navigate in a certain way. It's saying, this is what is true. And if it's true, it means something for you. Now, to lay a foundation for us in Hebrews, it's a book that we know some about, but there's a whole lot of details that we just don't know anything about. Like we came from the book of Romans, like that was to the church in Rome. It was written by Paul. We know kind of a pretty close uh, estimate of the time. Uh, This book's not like that. We don't know the author of the book. Many people have made guesses, but any honest theologian would be like, hey, we don't really have a way to actually know 100% who wrote it. Uh, We also don't know the original specific recipient, like the first person's hands that got the letter. We don't know who that is. And and we also don't know the exact date uh, that that it was written or delivered. We we know close, uh, but we don't know the author. We don't know the first recipient. We don't know the actual date surrounding the book. But we do know the general time that it was written, and we do know the target audience surrounding the book. We know those things. Hebrews was written to the Hebrews, it's not hidden, Uh, which would have been uh, Jewish people who were converted to Christianity uh, sometime during Jesus' life and ministry or after his death and resurrection and ascension. So they're they're newer believers, and they had uh, converted over to believing in Jesus. They had been ones who believed in the old covenant, who believed in God and followed the, the law religiously, but now they've been awakened to Christ and the new covenant. They placed their face in Christ, and they decided to follow him. Soon after their conversion, their identification with Christ and his church, though, they started to, to really experience severe persecution for their new faith, right? Even the, the parable of the soils last week, they, they started hitting some, some, some thorny ground. They were subject to social indignities, meaning out in the, in the circle spheres, they, uh, they were not looked upon well. There was economic pressure for them in following Jesus, and there was physical persecution as well. Suddenly, following Jesus became quite costly for them. Right, the initial excitement, Jesus, grace, mercy, this is wonderful, and, and now they're having tension. What seemed to be the case is that Christianity was being persecuted largely while, while Judaism uh, was still protected by Rome in that time. Uh, so since Judaism uh, was not persecuted, this is what their minds did. They were, they were tempted to revert back. Hey, man, what we did and what our grandparents did and what our great-grandparents did like, they're doing fine. There's no pressure on them. Like, what if, we, what if we kind of go back to that and we follow the old covenant and we follow Moses again? They, they were wanting to or, or debating whether to lay down the doctrine of grace in Jesus and pick back up Levitical sacrifices and the priesthood and all the things that we find in the Old Testament. And you can almost maybe feel the wrestle in their hearts as they're stressing over, hey, what do I do? Do I go with this faith that I found or do I go back? And They'd probably be thinking, well, if we went back to Judaism, like, we'd still be believing in the God of our ancestors, so, like, that's good, Uh, and we still have the promises to our ancestors, and that's good, and we'd still be following the law, so that's good. I mean, we should be okay, 
right? Like, like it's not like we're becoming pagans. It's not like we're becoming godless people. But they're really weighing, is, is the Jesus part of the equation worth the trouble? Is, is Jesus and his message better than uh, what we went through before, sans the, the persecution? Christ offered them more than their old faith, but they weren't quite sure if they wanted to keep pressing forward. With this foundation laid, it helps us bring into focus the letter and its intent. The author is aiming to establish the the finality and the superiority of Christ, that he is better than anything and everything, things before, things now, things in the future. He is better. And what we're going to see in the the book is uh, why the series is even titled Jesus is Better is because the Greek word translated as better or more excellent is used 13 times in the letter. It's going to be a drum that the author beats over and over and over again. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is a better promise of things to come. Jesus is the better covenant, the better sacrifice. He's the better possession. He's the better prophet. He's the better priest. He's the better king. He's the better life. He's the better promise. He's the better country. He's the better word. Jesus is better than anything and everything that you'll ever find or ever see in creation and in anywhere else. It's a great time for an amen. We're going to work on that in this series. There, a little. There's a half of one. We've got a year, so we'll get it. In every way, believers look over their shoulder and they wonder, hey, man, should I walk away? Like, this is hard. It feels like I'm just, like, I'm, I'm rowing against the current and I'm tired and there's pressure. Should, should I turn around? And, and the author's kind of asking the question, where do you think you're going to go? Like, where would you go? And what do you think you'll find if you try and go there? Because you have Christ now and Christ is better than anything else. Anything that you can run to, anything that you can find, anything that you try and find rest in, he's better, so stay. And remember who Christ really is and fight to see him for who he is and walk in the reality of his goodness and who he is. As this uh, book is open for us, I believe there's some ways that we can connect with this. I'm not trying to overreach, but, but I do think there's some things that we can kind of connect with them for uh, our current culture. In our generation, Christianity has lost its favor. It's the first time for our generation uh, where once Christianity was respected of and thought well of, and, and people actually kind of associated goodness and morality with Christ and Christianity and all that stuff, that's gone. Now in our country, the loudest voices, not everyone, but the loudest people yelling, uh, say that Christianity is wrong, it's villainized, it's, it's mocked, it's contested. Christ is seen as archaic. Uh, people who follow Christ are seen as hateful, bigoted, uneducated, unenlightened, unmodern. Just the cultural climate has shifted from neutrality to negativity. And here's the thing that we have to be really honest with. In the end of the Christendom, we, we kind of thought there was this period of time in, in the United States and in the West where uh, Christianity was looked upon uh, positively. And that ended, and, and then it became neutral, and we just wept. Oh, my gosh, this is so terrible. And then we didn't see, like, hey, yeah, it could go from neutral to negative, though. And, and that's where we've shifted. It, the, the culture is negative towards the historical faith of Christianity, and when we're talking about that, it's, it's the faith hand down that they talk about a lot in the Bible. Uh, the, the, history, or the culture around us looks down at our view over humanity and over our view of culture as well. So when we look at the, the pressure against Orthodox Christianity, along with the emotional toll of a pandemic, on top of the weight of life in a broken world, it's quite possible that maybe some of us feel the same pull. 
right? That's, that's a heck of a one, two, three that we've got hit with. That maybe some of us are looking over our shoulders and asking the same thing. Would life be easier? Would it be simpler? Would it be better? Would it be more fulfilling if I took the off-ramp? And maybe I'll still believe in God and just kind of do it my own way. But, but what if I just kind of left the, the, the commission of Jesus and Jesus behind? Would it be easier? If you find yourself with those thoughts, which happen at times, the Bible calls it the dark night of the soul, or you just find yourself, maybe maybe you're not thinking of giving up, but maybe you just see that somehow the, the goodness of Jesus and, and the radiance of Christ and the joy that you once had has just been muted. It's like it was at a 10 at one point, now it's like at a 2.2. It's, just, it's down and his, his, his goodness feels far off, almost as if it's a dream or something in the past or, or something that you can't connect with anymore. And if, if the joy in Christ has shrunk for you, my hope for you would be the same as my hope for everyone and myself, that we would really see that Jesus is better. And I, I wish that we could press that line in a way that it connected, that we would feel it to be true, not just cognitively be like, yes, he's the better, he's the better, but that we would actually rejoice deep in our soul that he really is better, that there would be joy coming from a fountain of understanding Christ is better than all things, and he is mine, and I am his, and he'll never let me go, and he wins. That, that's the hope. Hearts that well up with the magnificence of Christ. The world is hard. Life is hard. He's amazing, though. And this is what he's done. As the text opens up, the author tells us something profound in the gateway into uh, the, the book that God speaks. One of the most common objections to Christianity is the, is the perceived silence of God. Skeptics say, well, if your God exists, he sure doesn't speak And so if he is real, he's at a distance and he can't be engaged with. And since he doesn't speak and he can't be engaged with, he can't be known. So none of you can tell me who he is or what he says. He's just, he's a million miles away if he even exists because he doesn't really talk. That's one camp. And and the opposite camp believes that God is uh, not silent at all. That God speaks through anything and everything all the time. And, And for them, this means that every religion is God speaking. And every spirituality is God speaking, and every crystal ball, and nature, and all things are a forum for God to speak to us, because he just, he just speaks through however he speaks to you. All is God, and everything is a way that he could talk. The author in Hebrews refutes both of those. He says, God is not silent, and God also hasn't spoken in some half-baked way of whatever you perceive it to be. God has spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in the last days he's spoken by his son. That is by Christ Jesus. He spoke through the prophets, then Jesus. He is not silent. The beauty of this is the realization that God is knowable. He is. We can know things about him. The infinite creator doesn't say, get away from me, finite creature. He says, this is who I am. Come know me. He shows his character. He shows his heart. He shows some of his desires. He shows some of his plans. He hasn't hidden himself. Remember, when we sinned, he ran after us. God reveals his heart and his being to us. It's maybe difficult for us to feel uh, the weight of this since culture has largely smashed all things together uh, to where nothing is, is sacred and nothing is, is transcendent, right? The idea of there's no professionals and everybody's equal and, and we've, we've, we've smashed all things together where there's no mountains and there's no valley, just everything's the same. And because of that, we don't see the beauty that the transcendent Holy Father speaks to us. The one who's a burning fire in his holiness, he speaks. 
When the author says that God spoke to the fathers uh, or to our fathers through the prophets, he was talking about in Old Testament times how God spoke through men. He would send messages through men. Hey, go and tell them uh, to, to, to do this and reveal himself to people through men. But it says in the last days, which is the period of time that was initiated when Christ ascended back to heaven, it started then, and it'll end when he returns again. So when we say last days, we're not being like, well, it's close, or it's 24 hours. It's not talking about a length of time. It's talking about a, a period of time. In this period of time, he speaks through Jesus. It was the prophet's. Now it's through Jesus. This is why uh, we believe that there are no prophets that we will accept words from them, meaning no person can come in and override the words of the apostles. Nobody can say, here's, the, here's a new book called uh, Modern 2022. The Lord gave it to me. Be thankful. I'm his new prophet. Here, take this. No, no, we don't, we don't do that. The, the, the canon is closed because the speaking of God now comes through Christ. And we'll like, do a little timeout and, and step over here. Uh, this isn't talking about the gift of prophecy. That's something completely different, but uh, prophets in the sense of the Old Testament who come in, thus saith the Lord, it, it, that stuff is not how he speaks anymore. It's through Christ. Now, church, what does this mean? It, it means if you've ever wanted to hear from God, if you ever wanted to know what he's like or understand him more, you don't have to pray for the clouds to part and a voice to come down to you. You don't need to go find some tablets uh, that were buried in the Midwest to start a new religion, right? Don't do that. And, and you don't have to go find yourself a, a real and legit prophet to talk to. You look at Jesus, and that is God speaking to you about who he is and what he is. You need to look at him. Look at the scriptures and ask the Holy Spirit, who is the revealer of Christ, to show you the beauty of Christ. And through Jesus, you see the Father God. We get into these fears like, I just want God to speak to me. I just want to, I want to know him. Read your Bible. No, no, no. I just want him to speak to me. I just want to know him. Read your Bible. No, no. Read and see Jesus, and the Holy Spirit will show him to you. Through Jesus, God speaks to you, and he speaks to me. There's a beauty there. In this, we can also see the relationship between the Old Testament and the New. There, there's a disconnect for us at times. We're like, how do these work together? And like, what, what's going on? Well, in the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets, and they gave a clear message that was woven all through the Old Testament that there would be one who's coming who would be the Messiah, the Redeemer, and he would save us. All through the Old Testament. There's a Messiah coming, a Redeemer coming. He's coming to save and rule and, and reign. And then the Old Testament ends on a cliffhanger because there's this prevailing question, like everything's kind of going nuts. Old Testament ends, and, and, and the cliffhanger question is, well, who is it then? Who's the promised one? Who's the Redeemer? And the suspense and the tension of who will come and who will save us and who will fix this, then you open up into the New Testament and it opens up with a genealogy that leads to the birth of Jesus, saying he was always the one. It was always him, the cliffhanger. The answer was, was Jesus, the Christ, and now he's going to Christ, the one that the Old Testament was always pointing to. When you look to him and you, you, you actually see me, he isn't just the one who saves you. He's the one who shows you who I am. For the original audience, the message was clear. Jesus is the new and better prophet. He's the new and better revelation of God. And they may have wondered, well, how do you know he's, he's better? How do you know he's superior? Maybe they had some cynic in them like I do who's constantly going, like, prove it to me. 
And, and the author's going, okay, that's fine. I can give you reasons why he's the better re revelation, and I'll throw in reasons why he's just plain better than everything, and he throws them out in a gauntlet in the first four verses. One, well, he's better because he, the son, Jesus, is the heir of all things. And two, he's the one through whom God created the world. And three, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And four, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Oh, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Five, this is how we know that he is better. This is the, the proof. And we need to see the bigger picture that the author is, is kind of painting on the canvas for us. What he's done is he's taken the attributes that, that Old Testament Israel would have given to the God of Israel throughout the Old Testament. He's taken all those attributes that they would have given to God, and what he does is those qualities of God that they would know God by, he ascribes them to Jesus. All of those things that you would think of about God, those are, those are about Jesus. Jesus is the heir of the whole world. It's all his. Jesus is the one who sits on the throne, is king. Jesus is the creator of the world. Jesus is the sustainer of the world. The author is making a statement. Jesus is the Lord of the universe. He's not the Lord of a couple people's hearts who decide to follow him. He is the Lord of anything and everything in the entire universe. It is all his. He created it. He uh, owns it, and he holds it together with his power. What would change if our, if our lives believed that today? What if we believed that that was actually true about him? He created it and he literally holds it together and it would all be destroyed without him. If we could understand that Jesus is not going to lose, he's not going to fail, he's not going to get outdone, he's not going to get overthrown, he's never going to become outdated no matter what people say and how loud they say it. The Lord of the universe reigns on high and is exalted and supreme over all things. It would change a lot. What would we be scared of if we thought that was true? The author isn't just trying to, to, to get us to see that Jesus is the better prophet, the revelation of God. He's also really deeply wants us to know he's the better king, right? And that, that's a little bit hard for us because we don't have a king here in the U.S. and we kind of looked at what happened uh, with the queen dying differently. Like we, we can't really connect to it, but, but other people all over history could. The Jews loved them some King David, they wished for another one just like him. And the author says, well, you've already received in Jesus one who is orders of magnitude better than King David. See that King Jesus has come and will come again. He is mighty. He is pure. He is worthy of your allegiance. And he is worthy of being followed. And here's the reality that the, the author is speaking into us. No one's asking you to follow some weak, phony sham of a king. Right? This is not, a, uh, in the words of our culture, a rigged election. This is not some brat kid who their dad was awesome and then they owned everything. We're called to follow the king of the universe. Not some phony, not some weakling without a spine. If you can't tell, the author already is trying to get a, a sense, as, as me and Blake love to say, of like, let's go. He is amazing. He's just pouring it on. When the author says that Jesus is the creator of the universe the heir of all things, and the ones who holds it together. This is a complete and comprehensive statement about Jesus' relationship to everything. Right? There's no sphere or circle that he didn't create and doesn't own. Jesus isn't one option 
of power thing, powerful things in our world. Jesus isn't one neat aspect of creation. Jesus is the creator. Jesus inherits it all, and Jesus holds it all together. And you may wonder, well, why does it say that he'll inherit it? Right? If it's his, why will he inherit it? Well, r- remember, why is he an heir? It's, it's trying to say in biblical language, anything that's God's is actually Jesus's. That's why they're saying heir. That's what happens with an heir uh, to a throne or a right. Anything that's God is Jesus's. You cannot separate the things owned by God and what is owned by Jesus. So remember again, why would, he, why would this heir and the owner of all things be quite important to them? And why would not separating what one owns and another owns be important? Remember, these people are thinking about abandoning Jesus. They're thinking about, hey, what if I just follow God? What if I just do that, and what if I leave out the Jesus stuff? And the author is reminding them, well, one, it's heresy to try and separate the two. But how is that going to work? Because you, you can't do that. What is the Father's is the Son's. The Son is the heir of all things. We cannot belong to the Father and not the Son, just like creation can't. There's a heresy that is popularized hundreds of years ago called uh, deism. deism. And it believes that God created uh, and, and then just walked away. So the idea is, uh, the analogy that, that a lot of people run with is like a watchmaker. He, he put it all together, and he molded, and he crafted it, and then he just spun it, and, and then he left it to just go on perpetual motion forever, and it doesn't need him, and it doesn't need his influence, and it doesn't need his power, or anything else like that. He created it, but now he lives divorced from uh, the creation, as if the, uh, the creation lives outside of the power and care of God. But the author shows us Jesus didn't just create the world, and he doesn't just inherit creation. He literally holds it together by the word of his power. The author is saying that if Jesus stopped being involved in creation ever, if he really did walk away like a deist, like he made it and doesn't care and moves on, uh, that, that creation would implode like a black hole. It cannot be sustained, and it will not hold together without him. It would crash upon itself and not exist. Jesus literally is the center of it all. Again, where are you going to go? He made it. He owns it. He keeps it together. And one day he'll return and he'll put it back together. Though life may be heavy at times, the author also wants us to see where else better for you to feel safe than in this creator who owns it all and sustains it, who's given a better word over your life, promised you more and better things than anybody else is, and paid for it himself. Where are you going to go? Who's more powerful? Who's a better word? Who's a more safe spot to rest in than than this Jesus? So not only does Jesus own what is attributed to God the Father all over the Old Testament, the author also makes the claim about the nature of Christ. So not just ownership, but but actual being uh, and nature, saying he is, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his Nature. So it would be easy to try and shift and, and pivot and think, okay, fine. God and Jesus co-own everything, right? Their, their names are both on the deed to all of it, okay? They, they, they co-own it, but the author's going, no you, no, you can't do that. You can't stop at who owns what. They're not just partners. The author says the, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Think of rays of sun. When you feel the heat of the sun, the rays of it, you, you're feeling the, 
the, the son. The author is making that comparison between God and Jesus. There is a connection between them. When you feel the father, it is through the son. He is the radiance of the glory of God. In the Old Testament, uh, the glory of God was talked about uh, through the power of light all over the place. And, and think of if, if your mind just tracks with oh, maybe that's why they did the whole burning bush thing. And different, there's, there's light all over the Old Testament. When Moses goes up uh, the mountain and he comes back down, it says after he saw the glory of God, he radiated with the glory of God when he returned. His, his face uh, shone like the sun because the glory and the light of God was so strong that him just passing by, it, it overwhelmed him. The author is uh, attributing that, that radiance of God to Jesus. He's going, they're connected. When you see Jesus, you see the glory of the Father. And when you reject Jesus, you reject the glory of the Father as well. Jesus is the manifestation of God's glory to us. Then there is the belief that God the Father and Jesus are just vastly different. Right? And this is one that many of us are maybe still even parsing through. Uh, it's the one that got taught a lot while we were younger, as if God is the, uh, the angry one. Right? God the Father is angry. He's uh, short-tempered. He likes to lash out. He's harsh, and he's pretty old school, and he's pretty archaic. But Jesus, he's kind, and he's patient, and he's loving, and he's modern, as if uh, in, the, in the Trinity, as if somehow, like, uh, Jesus is the good cop, and God's like not, right? There's an angry one, and there's a good one, and they're, and they're, and they're kind of like this uh, yin and yang, opposite sides, and they balance each other out, and the author says, no, 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 that is not at all what's going on. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Now, in this imprint, they're talking about like the prints that you would have for a seal or a, a coin, right? When you would uh, make an imprint and then you would, uh, then, then you would uh, stamp the coin and there's the image on it. He, he, he's saying this about God and Jesus. Th- their natures are not different. They're, they're the same. When you experience the heart of Jesus, you're experiencing the heart of the Father, They're not opposite in nature. One's not angry and one good. They are the same in nature. The son and the father are one in nature. The dichotomy has to end. You can't seek the father without the son. You can't see the father without looking towards the son. Now look at the general idea the author has woven in so far. Jesus is the better prophet, right? The better revelation of God. What better to show us God the father... We've gone, well, maybe there'd be better choices than this Jesus. Okay, well, what better than the exact imprint of his nature? What better than the radiance of his glory? I I think he'd probably be the best one. He's the better prophet, and he's the better king. King David was the mold of Judaism, but Jesus is the one who created all things, the one who owns all things, the one who holds them together. Who better to reign on the throne than Christ Jesus? What better king could we ever expect to find? Then the author makes the case that Jesus is also the better priest, better prophet, better priest, or better king, and better priest. And he says it this way, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. There are two key like ingredients or things in there that we have to hold on to. One, Jesus made purification for sins. Jesus didn't come to give you a Ferrari. He didn't give you, come to give you a, a, a guest house. He came to purify your sins. After doing that, he sat down. Purification of sins, 
sat down. I'm like, well, okay, he sat. I'm like, big whoop. Like, why? Cool. Let, let's not miss the context. A group of people are contemplating leaving the faith that they put in Jesus. And if they left the faith in Jesus, they're going to go back to the law and sacrifices and, and goats and bulls and doves and blood and altars and sprinkling and, and, and all of that and the need for priests to constantly do that. They're thinking, I'm going to leave Jesus. I'm going to go back to all of that stuff, leaving the faith that they'd put in Christ. They're weighing whether that would be better, if they'd be better off without Christ, and if they'd be better in the hands of the old covenant and the laws. Well, in the Old Testament, remember, would this be better? In the Old Testament, what we learn is that there's no seat in the temple, right? And there's some pretty cool uh, writing in the Old Testament that shows us what the actual inner temple is and what's happening there. Uh, and, and for reference sake, there's always sacrifices for sin made inside the temple. And as you look around, you see all this really cool imagery, and you're like, there's no chair. Why is there no chair? Where are they going to sit? Somebody's got to sit. Are they like 15-minute break? Like, wh- what do we do? Well, there's no chair specifically for a reason, to show you there's no time that they can sit down. Their work is never done. They're moving 24-7, another sacrifice, and another sacrifice, and another one, right? Over and over and over. Bad joke, he got it. The, the work is never done. There's always more to do over and over and over again. There's no seat because they can't sit. Running and running and killing and killing and blood and blood and over and over. Why? Because animal sacrifices were never meant to actually purify us eternally. So the priest's work was never finished because there's always more sin. So if, if you think about like the reality of those sacrifices being a shadow to Jesus, but, the, but also there, there was no like future purification that killing a bull would give you. Right, so maybe like last week is is really bad. Okay, we're gonna have to like we're gonna have to look at uh, fifteen hundred bulls. We're gonna have to go and kill them for next week. Done. Okay, good, cool. Ah, Jacob sinned. Go get twelve more bulls. Like there's always more sin, so there's always more sacrifices, which means there's always more work and always more atoning and always more blood. Constant requirements of over and over and over and over. But the text says that Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God the Lord of the universe, after making purification for sins, after making a single and ultimate sacrifice, this Redeemer sat down. He was finished. It was finished. See, the cross destroyed the need for priests to make more and more and more sacrifice. There didn't need to be more and more and more blood because the perfect blood of the spotless lamb at the cross atoned for all things. Christ the lamb was slain to defeat sin forevermore. This is why Christ could sit down at the right hand of the Father, because he had defeated death and sin eternally already. The Savior had crushed the head of the snake. He doesn't need to go back and die again. Think about it. If he was like the priest, then we would have to have, like, what, monthly, yearly? Like, how how far would we go out? Jesus, can you come down again? Can we have the 1820th Advent where you come down and we put you on a cross again? Sorry, we'll do better next year because it doesn't pay for future sins. We don't do that. And the reason why is we don't have to. We don't have to. His blood paid for past, present, and future sins. The imprint of the nature of God, the Messiah, the promised one all over the Old Testament who would give a better sacrifice and be a better word. This is Jesus, and he came, and he defeated all of that sin, and then like a true king, King Jesus sat down on his throne. It's finished. He descended to earth. 
this is where I love old movies, came down, fought a huge, a great battle, and then he comes back home victorious with a bounty of redemption, sons and daughters who don't even know they're his yet. He comes back, look what I've won. And he sits back at the right hand of the father. The king will one day come back and fully reveal the extent of all of his work and put creation back together again. All that was broken will be restored. Every knee will bow to him. Darkness will be no more because the radiance of the glory of God will be all that you see. He will reign perfectly. Friends, this message of Christ who can pay for your sins, all of them, is is the way that you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're clean. See, it, it's, it's the reality that gives us the beautiful truth that you don't have to fix yourself anymore. You don't have to. It doesn't mean nothing matters. Remember, the focus, too, was how do we balance grace and intentionality, but, but it's the reality that he has perfected you in what he has done. He has put away your past, present, and the sins you don't even know that you're going to commit. He's paid for them all. He has done this. The better priest made the ultimate sacrifice. See, this is what we remember when we take communion. We're not just uh, getting some old cups and some old bread and, and some gluten-free options and all this stuff and just like, that's how we say break and we go home. That, that's not what we're doing. We're remembering that the ultimate sacrifice was made, that we're not killing goats and bulls and lambs and there's not blood everywhere anymore and, and, and we can sit down and rest because he sat down and rested in his work. We're remembering his body was broken and his blood was shed and we each day, even where we come in going, man, I... The Lord was close, and I followed him well this week. Or you come in going, man, I did horrible. And there's still a sacrifice. And you're coming and being built up in the reality. God has done that and restored you through what he's done to end the reign of sin over you, to make you new, redeem you, love you, pay your debt, atone for what you have done, and then allow you to breathe and rest. If his sacrifice was not this good, you and I would need to be petrified and terrified every moment of every day. What if I thought I was good and I wasn't? What if, what if, what if I like went 99% of the way, but there's one more percent that I should have gone and then he would have loved me? His blood paid for it all. You don't have to do that. You rest in the finished work of the better prophet, the better priest, the better king. Now the opening of this text, it's, it's declarative. It's not begging you to do anything. It's not asking for your support or your agreement. It's telling you who Jesus is as fact. And the word that is sharper than a two-edged sword, which we see in Hebrews 4, that declares who this Jesus is, the hope is that it cuts deep into our soul and that it changes us. This is the king that we follow. This is the beauty of who he is and what he's done, that we would become marked by the reality of Jesus. He really is better. Jesus is the better prophet because who better can show us God than his exact imprint? Jesus is the better king who is able to sit on high beside the Father. This seated is a a term of kingliness. He's seated on the throne, and he's a better priest. He's done what nothing else could do. Men tried. Prophets tried. Kings tried. No one, no one could atone. But the one promised all over the Old Testament, he did. He's made a way to unite us to the Father, to show us the Father. And because of this power and the goodness of what he's done, the author just challenges you, hey, where else are you going to go? Where else can you go, church? Where will you find life like this? But in Jesus, who is the radiance of 
the glory of God. He is better. As we move into a time of, of worship and song and communion, band, you guys can come back up. I don't want to overhype man you or artificially try and pump you up, but my prayer and the elders' prayer for us, we have been praying and just expectant all week for you, and, and not just for you, and for our own hearts. It's a desperate prayer. Let us see Jesus more. Let us see him rightly. Let us with clear eyes see the, the Savior. And here as we begin to walk through this book, the, the hope is maybe that we pray together, hey, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you show me anything that's in my way that, that, that's kind of blinding me from the reality of who Jesus is? I'm not trying to work off anything. I just want to see him. If he's really that good, I want to see him. I want to rest in him. I want to know him. I want to walk with him. I want to follow him. May we wrestle with that in prayer this morning. And in the hopes of seeing who he is more clearly, I have played on repeat, a song called A Thousand Names. I'm just going to read you uh, the bridge. I tried with everything I could to get it played today, but it just wasn't going to work yet. Maybe, maybe in the next couple weeks. But uh, this is what we want to just not hear, but we want to see it as true with our hearts. This is of Jesus. You're the rock of ages. You're the great I am. You're the king forever, the beginning and the end. You're the Lord and servant. You're the son of man. You're the lion of Judah. You're the risen lamb. You're the second Adam here to lead us home. That's a good line. You are Yahweh's glory now revealed in flesh and bone. You are ocean parter. You will make a way. You are death defeater. You are risen from the grave. You're full of mercy. You're rich in love. You're you're Jesus, Messiah, the one true God. This is the hope that we would see that as true. He's good, and he's gracious, and he's kind, and he offers you more than anyone else will. I pray that your heart would rest in that. We'll take communion uh, today and just recap again. Uh, anytime during, we're going to play uh, three, three songs, I think, at the end. Anytime you can come up and take. The hope is, is that you do a little bit of re- reflection and prayer as you come up and take, but maybe not everybody wait till the last song. Uh, to, to come up and take, but the hope is that when you come and take the bread and dip it into the cup, you're saying to yourself, this is your body broken for me. This is your blood shed for me. I am clean. I am pure. I am loved. I am known, not by anything I've done. My resume has nothing to do with it. It is only your glory and your goodness. And that you take an encouragement and hope of that. He has done that for you. First Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 is where we get our understanding of communion. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the beauty of the table. You're proclaiming to each other and to your own heart and to the world that Jesus died for a reason. He died to save and be the Messiah and the Redeemer, and he's loving, and his gift and his sacrifice is perfect. I pray that your heart would be encouraged by that today. God, would you draw near to us? Or do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, we pray that you come near. Show us the Son. Show us a full picture of his beauty and his goodness. For those who are tired, for those who are worn down, for those who feel weak, maybe for those who feel great, Lord, just show us Jesus clearly today. Would you restore our hope in that, our joy in that, um, maybe even our resilience to the world? Our king will not lose. 
and he stands and he reigns and he one day will come again. Show us that clearly. May we believe it and may we see it. Holy Spirit, anything that stands in the way of seeing the reality of who Jesus really is, would you lovingly point to it and help remove it? Help us repent where needed and help us worship and build hope in Jesus, the perfection, the better prophet, the better priest, the better king, the better one over all things. We pray that in your name. Be glorified here, Father. May our worship be pleasing to you. Would you meet us at the table and in our songs? pray this in your name. Amen.